1: Uh, Right now, we want to get an update on the vaccine situation for COVID-19. You may have heard in the news or seen the headline that Canada has secured two new deals for possible vaccines. We wanted to get some more details on that. So joining us now to discuss that is Michael Couture, our Global National Parliamentary Correspondent. Mike, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. All right. So what is the deal with these two new contracts?
2: Yeah, so uh, yesterday announced Novavax and Johnson & Johnson are two new deals uh, that Canada has signed. And essentially what this does in this, uh, you know, big horse race to, to try and get a vaccine for COVID-19 is uh, Canada is putting money and essentially down payments, in essence, to both of these companies to try and secure some doses. Uh, now, as you know, Simi, in politics optics is everything so yesterday a lot of numbers were being thrown around in terms of how many doses Canada has reserved to make sure that Canadians feel like they're being taken care of by their government and so yesterday we're told 88 million doses are guaranteed with an option of 190 million doses total for Canadians uh, if you drill down in those numbers you have to think that that's only if every single deal comes through. So if four companies have a successful vaccine and then we have access to all those vaccines, Also important to note, Canada's population is only 37.5 million people. We've had a number of people email us, uh, and saying, you know, why do we need so many doses? Well, consider that a different vaccine requires a different number of doses. Some of them require two doses. So if you're a successful, if that successful candidate is chosen for Canada, a total of 75 million doses will be needed. Um, the Minister of Procurement was also uh, very quick to point out that while we've signed with four companies, there's a fifth one that you can possibly expect news on, AstraZeneca. Uh, They've partnered with the University of Oxford for a vaccine, and that deal could be announced within about a week or two.
1: Okay, so how does that, you talked about how Canada stands compared to other countries there. How do we stand compared to, say, the United States?
2: Yeah, so it depends on who you ask, right? So if you ask our government, well, hey, we're doing fine. Um, There's no problem at all. If you ask some critics, they say we're at the back of the line. Uh, When you consider that Canada has signed some of these deals after the United States and for far fewer numbers of doses, uh, you know, that's why some of these infectious disease experts believe that Canadians will only be rolling up their sleeves, uh, you know, months after the United States and even countries in Europe because they have been extremely aggressive in trying to make sure that they reserve some of these doses. One government official did tell me though, it's not like a true lineup. Instead, it's kind of like a down payment on a certain number of doses or in cases or, or in other cases, it's actually like you get the recipe. So if Canada, um, uh, is scaling up manufacturing capability, it could be, uh, that essentially one of these, um, one of these vaccines becomes successful and then Canada can help manufacture mm-hmm. it, uh, in our plants here. And then that could help speed up the process. The minister of procurement basically said, look, um, a lot of these Canadian contracts have a built-in delivery date that aren't affected by other countries, while at the same time, she did say the earliest uh, that we could see a vaccine uh, with one of these deals is the first quarter of 2021. Now, that's financial speak, uh, which, you know, it's just kind of, uh, you know, vague. So essentially, by March of 2021, not as soon as the United States is promising, but then uh, again, consider the source. You have President uh, of the United States, Donald Trump, saying, well, by the time the election rolls around down there, they could have a vaccine, Uh, but it's unclear whether or not that'll actually happen.
1: So true. All right, Mike, thanks so much for the update. Thanks for having me. That's Michael Couture, our Global National Parliamentary correspondent with the update on Canada's vaccine situation. We are in line, but still cutting deals to make sure there is some kind of supply to people. But we'll keep you posted on that.
0: This is Mornings with Simi.
1: It may seem like a lot of things are returning to normal. I mean, here we are talking about back to school, right? First week of September. And yet for so many people, life is still anything but. We're talking people who work in hotels, people who work for airlines, anybody who works in the tourism industry they still don't know when that industry is going to return to anything like normal. We also know that income inequality is already a struggle in Canada, has been for years now. But what's it going to look like in a few months or even a few years down the road when the full effects of these layoffs are actually felt. Well, we wanted to talk more about that now. Joining us now is Dalhousie University economics professor Lars Osberg. Uh, we're talking about the long-term impact of the pandemic on household finances. Lars, thank you for joining us.
3: It's uh, good to be talking to you.
1: So who, what group do you think it is that is feeling the most impact right now?
3: Well, there the isn't really very much uh, doubt it's people at uh, the lowest-paid workers in Canada have been by far the most affected. Uh, in part because uh, they were typically employed in, or more likely to be employed in sectors uh, like accommodation and, and food services, or in retail trade, uh, and those are the, the sectors that were just massively hit um, by the lockdown and by the very halting recovery uh, since then. People at the top of the, of the earnings distribution more likely to be on, on salary, uh, not so much hit even in the first instance, and, uh, and even uh, by June, they had basically made back all the hours that they lost in, in the lockdown. So a very unequal distribution of the impacts.
1: So you're saying if you were an hourly worker, you were hit hard. If you were a salaried worker, probably not as much.
3: Uh, It's both the hourly paid versus salary and the industry in which you were were employed. If you're hourly paid and uh, employed in accommodation and food services, uh, for example, uh, that's where where people lost like uh, 50% of their Mm -hmm. their hours if you're making under $16 an hour. At the very top of the distribution, uh, not so much of an impact, at least not not up to now.
1: Yeah, because we know that big events like this, like 2008, can reshape things, but we won't actually see that for, you know, a few years. Lars, what do you think is going to shake out a few years from now? What kind of impact is this going to have?
3: Well, we, we have seen a, a, a bit of a bounce back uh, in, in, in employment. Uh, Again, much, uh, much uh, less of a bounce back at the bottom of the uh, wage distribution than than at the top. But some of that, uh, you have to wonder whether it's going to continue. Restaurants, for example, that that have uh, reopened and and uh, try to make a make a go of it, have to now cope with the fact that they've got the same uh, expenses in, in the kitchen. They they've often got the same uh, rent, or not a big a big change, um, but they have to try and make a profit off a, a lot fewer tables and uh, with a lot fewer people who are actually going out uh, to to try to dine out. Uh, so that decline in demand and that increase in, in, the co- in costs that's, a, that's come with the pandemic is going to in- decrease profitability and it's going to uh, decrease in, uh, employment and increase the bankruptcy rate uh, going forward. So you have to be a kind of pessimistic unless the government steps in uh, to st- stimulate aggregate demand.
1: Right, which is what they've been trying to do, though. Is it not enough? Will it be enough to care? These are unprecedented times. Do we know what even is enough?
3: Well, these are absolutely un- unprecedented uh, times. Uh, the uh, COVID-19 uh, re- recession is-, is remarkable. It's completely unprecedented in terms of its its size, in terms of its uh, suddenness, and in terms of its simultaneous impact all, all around the world. Uh, so consumer demand has-, has tanked, and business investment has tanked. Uh, exports are-, are down because nobody else is buying in the rest of, of the world in- in nearly as much as they used to. Uh, so the only thing that's keeping the bus uh, going at all uh, these days is the, the increase in government expenditure. And if government tries to withdraw that uh, spending too quickly, uh, then we're into a really uh, long-term uh, d- decline in economic activity.
1: Right. Because what we're hearing now is that there's industries saying that they need more, right? They need more help into next year.
3: Well, yes. And we the the uh, progress of the pandemic and the progress of the disease is very unclear, and that uncertainty in itself uh, depresses expectations and de- depresses in- investment. And, and in addition, you ha- you have the fact uh, that it's uh, progressing all around the world. So uh, you know, sectors uh, like accommodation or uh, a- the aviation industry are really looking at long-term uh, and, and declines. So it's the, the new normal. Is going to be very different in terms of industrial composition of employment. And it, it, it's going to be a big transition. And that's why we need a government to, to step up to the plate and ease that transition.
1: Is there, when you look around the world, is there any government, Lars, that I mean, it seems like everybody is trying something different. Is there any government that seems to be on the right path to making those investments, to seeing the kind of recovery that you're talking about?
3: Well, some of the European governments uh, have done fairly well in minimizing the short term economic impact and also minimizing. Uh, degree uh, disease progression. Uh, Germany has coped relatively well uh, compared to, to many other uh, countries. Uh, there is an interesting example in the Scandinavian countries how Sweden tried to basically ignore the pandemic for a while, um, but it hasn't worked out for them. The other Scandinavian countries like Denmark and Norway have done considerably uh, better and are much more like uh, coming back to normal. New Zealand has the advantage of being an island nation, so it's been able to come back to normal much more quickly. But of course, they lost their tourism industry, which used to be a, a big employer. So there's big changes all, all around all, all around the world. Our problem here in Canada is that we're stuck with the United States uh, as a, as a neighbor, and, and there it's, it's just been a gong show. Uh, so that that uh, has been just a complete. Uh, sh- schmauzel uh, south of the border.
1: All right. Listen, Lars, thanks so much for your time on this this morning.
3: It's been good talking to you.
1: That's Lars Osberg, an economics professor at Dalhousie University, specializing in income and wealth distribution, talking about the long term impact of the pandemic on household finances, showing that at the lower end of income, it has been tougher for people than at the higher end, which is interesting, shows that kind of highlights that disparity that we're seeing there, that there are still people out there who made it through without, you know, too much problem. And that is just completely the opposite of so many people at the lower end of that spectrum as well.
0: This is Mornings with Simi. All
1: right, it is September 1st today. I start to think about fall right away. Of course, we're talking about back to school. uh, But, you know, I love this time of year. There's all sorts of cool things that happen, and we just want to do some things that make us feel like things are normal again, right? Well, how about heading to a corn maze? Because yes, some corn mazes are actually opening for the season today. So this traditional fall pastime will be available to you even in the time of COVID-19. So how are they making those changes to make sure all will be okay? Well, our Nikki Reitmeyer spoke to Mike Bose, the owner of Bose Farm Corn Maze in Surrey. It's the one that's off 64th Avenue and 156th. Have a listen. How many years have you guys been doing this for?
4: This is our 21st year.
5: 21st year? And what made you first want to start doing the corn maze?
4: I was uh, asked by a friend to grow corn for his dairy cows. And we'd heard about the corn maze in Chilliwack and uh, we uh, didn't know if we could make any real money growing corn to sell for silage. So we asked if it would be okay if we tried the corn maze as a way to try and boost the revenue of the cornfield. And the rest is history.
5: And have you made the corn maze progressively more challenging over the years? It
4: depends on the year. It depends on the... The people in the maze, whether they find it difficult or not, but they have gotten a little bit bigger. We have, we have had a few in the last couple of years that were more challenging than the first one. It Actually, it depends on the picture. It, it's actually what we're trying to, to depict, which will determine the challenge of the maze.
5: Ah, so each year has a theme to it. Yes, So what, it's a different, different picture every year. So what will the picture or theme be this year?
4: This year, it is um, Douglas College's 50th anniversary.
5: Oh, nice. So typically, in a normal year, how many people would you see come through the corn maze?
4: Um, We've never really kept track. But, you know, it's it's between 10 and 20,000.
5: Geez, so a fair few people. And I imagine things will be a little bit different this year, of course, because of of COVID-19. Are you changing your operations in any ways?
4: Well, this year's maze actually has uh, social distancing bubbles built into it. that if you come across somebody else there are trails that are doubly wide so that there's lots of room for you to pass and remain six feet apart we went with a slightly less artistic design so that it's a little bit more straightforward so that hopefully people don't end up doubling back too much On our way of helping you through the maze we actually have uh, 10 clue stations and when you answer the clue it points you get you going in hopefully the right direction if you answer the questions correctly. Ah, okay. And we may have made those questions a little bit easier than we have in the past. That's, that, that's where my wife gets nasty. She spends a lot of time digging up trivia and, and history, and some of the questions do prove challenging. But <laughs> there's, there are there's six questions at each station, and hopefully somebody can answer one of them correctly.
5: Now, for anyone who wants to do the corn maze, when is it operating?
4: We open at noon, and uh, up until Labor Day, we're open on Labor Day Monday. We're open during the day. After that, we're only open in the evening, um, except for Saturday. We're open at noon, and Sunday we're open noon to 4. But it's all on our website, bowsmaze.com.
5: bowsmaze.com, okay. And how much does it cost to get in?
4: You know, I I haven't asked. Last year it was $7. Um, we're hoping to do it all cashless. We do have a card reader. We would prefer debit or credit cards. And for people to have masks with them in case they feel they need them. This is going to be a very, very different year. We're nervous. But it is outdoors. It is It is a very large piece of ground. It's 25 acres. There's, there's lots of room for people to stay distant.
5: Mike, you said that you feel nervous. What is it in particular that has you feeling nervous?
4: I don't like pandemic. <laughs> you know, it's just uh, we've had a very, very small social bubble ourselves for um, eight or nine months. And uh, this will be opening up our social bubble so, It's the time that we're living
5: in. Mike, I think that what you're saying acts as a really good reminder that there are a lot of small business owners, business owners like yourself, who may be operating, but that doesn't mean that they're not nervous about it. And I think as well this serves as a good reminder for people who come visit your business or any other business to be respectful of that property, to be respectful of your property and of your space.
4: Respecting everybody's space, respecting, you know, the health authorities' guidelines, remaining distant, keeping your hands washed. Um, I mean, the biggest thing that, that's going to change this year is in the past, we've always had uh, fire pits with marshmallows and roasting sticks. Um, this year, if you, we will have the fire pits, but if you want mars- to roast marshmallows in the evening, you have to bring your own sticks and your own marshmallows. And everything you bring in, you'll have to take out. It's one, one of the changes that uh, this pandemic has forced upon us.
5: Yeah, no kidding, eh? Well, hey, Mike, thank you so much. I really appreciate you taking the time to chat with me.
4: Not a problem.
5: Best wishes, and hopefully we see you at the corn maze.
4: Hopefully. Have a great day and stay safe.
1: All right. So that's our Nikki Reitmeyer speaking with Mike Bowes. It's the Bowes Farm Corn Maze. It's in Surrey, just off 64th Avenue and 156th.
0: This is Mornings with Simi.
1: So back to school is a really challenging time. We were just talking about this with Richard Zussman, right? Especially if you've got smaller children in elementary school, Going through all the rules with them, the way things have changed, it's difficult, right, to communicate that with your kids. So if you're looking for a way to talk to your kids about COVID-19, well, there's a new way for you to do that. There's a book by Kamloops writer, artist, and mom, Susan Mark. You might want to check this out. It's called Safe at School, and she joins us now to talk more about it. Susan, thanks for being here. Good morning.
6: Thank you for having me.
1: How did you come up with this idea?
6: Uh, The Safe at School book is uh, the second in a series. I wrote the first one called Safe at Home um, during, I guess, the very beginning of when everything shut down. And it was just uh, basically a way of getting sort of the normalization of what was happening in society through to the youngest generation, which is a good place to start with these things. Um, And so the Safe at School book came along Not too long after that, when I realized we were going back to school for a short period in June.
1: Right. And
6: uh, uh, taking the teachings of (laughs) Dr. Bonnie Henry and putting it in a a rhyming format for kids to be able to read easily and
1: and enjoy was just a natural next step. I love this. Okay, so what age groups would you say this is good for?
6: Uh, Well, I've I've had had sales for every age, pre-kindergarten and up to the seniors homes by them <laughs> they have their their seniors because it's an activity book right and the seniors have been enjoying reading it to their to their younger kids maybe over the phone at this point but um, yeah so it's written with a um, probably a mid primary reading level okay Uh, But it's good to be read to kids at any age. And, of course, the activities in the book are good for any age.
1: All right. So, Susan, run me through some of the lessons that you wanted to put into this book, the messages that you really wanted to get across to kids.
6: Uh, Well, basically the teachings and the, the expectations of behavior in the schools right now. So washing your hands all the time and how the classroom is going to look different when they go back and trying to build that concept into their their minds like that preconception before they get there and and are their anxiety is maybe heightened because everything looks so different Mm -hmm. this is just a way of sort of introducing that before
1: they get there i see and where can people buy this book
6: so i'm still selling them um out of my home i've self-published because i wanted to be in control of where the money went because it's all going to covid relief charities Um, And I'm selling them on my email, which is S-U-E-S-I-E-M-A-R-K at gmail.com. And my Twitter is SusanMark3000, and you can reach me there and I can send them out to you.
1: And has it gotten busier? Are people buying more copies of it? Yes. Yeah, I'm up to
6: about 900 now in the
1: last little while, just as a self-published
6: author. That's it's not bad. And I'm just happy to donate to the, the food bank and the SPCA and, the and get that money out there and get the activities and the message into the, the minds of the kids.
1: And do you find, Susan, that like, parents, I'm sure, have been talking about this with you. You're a parent as well. It, it's mm-hmm. tough to kind of get that message through to kids about this. The school year is going to be different. The start anyway is going to be different
6: yeah and I, and i fear that some of what they're hearing is maybe uh, a negative <laughs> because of what's going on in the news and the media and and parents and teachers and government and and all of the disagreement there right now so this is a an easy simple sort of a child friendly message to to get to them with the that so they can color it and they can read it and it's rhyming i've had i've had parents contact me and say my my kids have memorized the entire story, and they recite oh. it to me, so it's kind I of love nice it. to hear.
1: I and love yeah. it, right? Because yeah. it, it helps us, like I always, when, I, when my kids were little, the first thing I did when I had something difficult to talk about was see if I could go find a book that would help me right. do that.
6: Exactly, exactly. That's where that, that new social behavior is normalized, most easily in children's media, so that's okay. where I started. Okay.
1: <laughs> Good yeah. then. So this is a great way to help kids learn some new lessons about what school, and helps take the nervousness out for them, right? If we can turn it into something fun.
6: Exactly. And that's what this is. It's fun.
1: This is fun. All right. So the book is that's called cool. Safe at School. One more time, Susan, where can people find it?
6: So my email is suesiemark at gmail.com. And I'm taking orders um, through Twitter. You can find my information there. It's Susan Mark 3000.
1: All right, I hope people check it out. Susan, thanks so much for your that time. Thanks for having me. That is Susan Mark. She's a Kamloops writer, artist, and a mom who has written and put together this book called Safe at School. It's a kind of a rhyming children's book to help kids adjust to what the new school year is going to be like. Great idea. Check it out if you can. This
0: is Mornings with Simi.
1: So all this week and next, we are talking about getting back to school, very stressful time for everybody involved. And of course, we're also talking about the post-secondary school system, because it's not just the you know school system K-12 where people are heading back. You're talking about university students. What about residences? What about dorms? How are you going to deal with some of those first-year classes at university that, in my memory, had you know a couple of hundred people in them at that time? Well, we're going to talk about that now with the help of the new president of Simon Fraser University. It is Joy Johnson, and what a day to start the new job, and she joins us now. Joy, thank you for being here. Thank you, Simi. It's a pleasure to be with you. Well, first of all, congratulations on the new job.
7: Thank you very much. I'm really honoured to be the 10th president of SFU.
1: And I'll bet you didn't think it was going to be under these kinds of circumstances. Absolutely. I,
7: when I uh, applied for the position, I had no, no idea I'd be facing a global pandemic and that we'd be dealing with these really uh, difficult and stressful circumstances.
1: And how are you planning for this? Because we've talked a lot about K-12, to but how is the post-secondary system dealing with a return to school? Well, very much like K-12,
7: I will say um, um, certainly the um, safety of our faculty, our staff and students are, is, is our number one concern. Um, for us this fall, uh, we will be offering most of our courses um, in a virtual or online platform. So we will have a few courses on campus, but very few. Uh, We made this decision early on so that we could plan. Uh, It was very uncertain what the fall would look like. And um, so we made the decision uh, uh, in the late spring um, to offer our fall courses um, for the most part online. So that means our students will be studying online and um, socializing online. And um, our professors are busy um, thinking about creative ways to actively engage their students.
1: And what about the students who are coming back to, say, live in residences? Because there are quite a few of those up at SFU as well.
7: Absolutely. So uh, we aren't going to fill our residence. We'll have about 700 students living on campus. And we're really focusing on keeping them safe as well, making sure that um, if they are coming from out of country, that they are um, self-isolating for the required period of time. And then making sure that they understand how to keep themselves um, healthy um, by you know, following uh, the guidelines of public health, washing their hands, physically distancing, um, etc. And, you know, making sure that there are appropriate activities on campus as well, um, so that they can um, uh, remain engaged in the life of the university.
1: Now, what about the issue, and I know this has come up for many post-secondary institutions, Joy, the idea that if, if kids aren't going to get the full campus experience, should they be paying full tuition?
7: Yeah, I know that's a big issue right now. Um, We are very, very confident that um, we're going to be offering uh, an excellent educational experience to our students. Uh, I think it also um, is very apparent that um, moving our courses online um, has required additional resources for us as well. Um, And so uh, we are... um, Certainly, and we're looking at additional um, opportunities for our students as well. So, for example, uh, creating um, virtual hubs for our students, or hives as we're calling them, so that they can meet new friends and, and, um, and um, as they come into the university. Uh, so, you know, I understand that um, there's a concern uh, around affordability uh, for our students, um, but the other thing that we're doing is making sure that we are setting aside additional funds for bursaries, et cetera, so that our students um, who are coming to the university, um, um, that we are uh, open and that we're um, providing support to as many as we can.
1: Right. Is this mainly an issue for first and second year students, though, because those are the larger classes, Right.
7: Yeah, so we actually, all for all, of, all of our undergraduate courses, for the most part, will be online. There are a few exceptions. There are certain courses that are really hard to teach uh, in a, on a virtual platform, as you can imagine, some of the lab courses, for example. And uh, so some of those will be on campus, um, but certainly our larger courses um, are going to be offered um, virtually. And we're looking at what we can do for January, I'm hoping to offer a few more in January in a face-to-face format.
1: Right. So do you view this then as temporary for this particular term?
7: Right. So, you know, the situation is very fluid, as you know. I think that all of us are now um, watching every day as the bump in numbers um, continues um, around COVID cases in British Columbia. And uh, we need to be responsive. uh, And and so while on the one hand, we want to come back to campus as quickly as possible uh, and um, be offering our courses in a face-to-face format, we recognize we have 35,000 students um, at SFU. And we need to make sure that um, the safety of our faculty, staff and students. Is paramount.
1: What has the challenge been like moving things to online? Because I know a lot of classes already have—I'd say most of them—have some kind of online element using Canvas or whatever it is. Was it a challenge to move more of that online?
3: Absolutely.
7: I mean, we have some faculty who actually have not taught on on on, on online platforms. Like ever. Uh, yeah, they've, they've relied um, for the most part on uh, on lectures and um, pretty traditional mechanisms for teaching. Um, and we've got a fantastic Center for Educational Excellence who's leaned in hard and helped all of our faculty to move their materials online. But online teaching is not simply offering your lecture online. Yeah. We have to think about new creative ways to engage students with materials. And the other challenge that we have is that we have not all of our, all of our students have returned to the lower mainland. So we have some students in different time zones, um, and so we have to think about how we can accommodate and not simply teach in a synchronous way, but also provide some asynchronous, so um, provide some material so that students can learn on their own as well. Um, in their different time zones. So it's, it's certainly very, very challenging. And we've had to put a lot of resource um, into it's basically recreating all of our course materials to make sure that they are adapted to these new this new virtual reality that we have.
1: Right. Oh, best of luck. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much, Simi. It was great speaking to you. That's Joy Johnson, the new president of Simon Fraser University. Today actually marks her first official day on the job. What a time, you know, to be taking this on. And so they are moving, as you heard, all undergraduate courses online and working to connect more with students that way. And that I know will pose its own challenges. So as many people know, I went back to university to finish my degree about, I don't know, four or five years ago now. And a lot of the classes that I did were online. I had to wait right? full-time job, kids at home, all that kind of stuff. And the people who thrive it online are the people who are like self-motivated, right? They're good time management, all of that. And that is going to be the challenge for a lot of these first year students is you're already, you know, getting used to this whole new way of doing things, this new workload, these new expectations that university has versus high school. And then you're expected to kind of manage all of that on your own, your own time, your own pace, all of that without being in class and being able to talk to fellow students. I think that is where the challenge is really going to lie. And I hope it doesn't, I hope it just doesn't, you know, discourage a lot of first year students. There's already enough to be discouraged about in your first year of university. Tough to make it through that. I feel like this is going to be an additional challenge for them. Uh, So best of luck if there's a student like that in your family or if you are one of those. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, they're calling it an Olympic moment in a new economic recovery plan that coming from the Greater Vancouver Board of Trade this morning. We know the pandemic has had this massive impact on the economy. And when that's happened in the past, it really has kind of brought on structural changes. So what kind of changes might we see? What kind of support do we need to see the economy recover? Joining us now, Bridget Anderson, President and CEO of the Greater Vancouver Board of Trade, also a member of the Premier's Economic Recovery Task Force. Bridget, thanks for being back with us.
8: Thanks for having me, Simmy.
1: All right, let's dive into this plan here. What does the government need to do?
8: Well, you did talk about an Olympic moment and I'm glad that you said that because this is a real opportunity for our region to transform itself. And so what we are proposing is a plan that has three pillars to it. And really the first pillar is helping businesses survive. The second is transforming our region and the third is investing in our future. And so this plan is both short term and long term. If we remember just a few weeks ago, we heard from Statistics Canada that in Metro Vancouver alone, over eight businesses had been lost since February and that period was just February to April so it could be more in fact and we have been doing surveys with our members and the business community for several months and hearing just how difficult this pandemic has been for them and continues to be so this economic recovery plan that we have proposed and submitted to the government really needs to think both short term and then also in the long term.
1: Okay, so we know that that's something the government has been talking to businesses and to the Greater Vancouver Board of Trade about. What concrete steps would you like to see them take in the next couple of months?
8: If we look at what is really needed in the short term to help businesses survive, uh, some of the things that we have recommended would be launching a working capital grant program for small businesses, which have been so detrimentally impacted to help restart or retool. And then alongside a COVID-19 training and or, or training or retraining grant, so to help with that training cost, because we know that employees, uh, their jobs are shifting and they need to make changes. And same with employers. So what kind of credits or, or incentives could be offered to help retrain those people who uh, who want to get back to work? As well, we're also saying that now is not the time to layer on more taxes and, and to now think about easing those regulatory burdens for For businesses, not to make it more difficult. One of the things that uh, I think was done that was very, very good was allowing all of these patios to to come up that we see and that everybody's been enjoying. So that's a great example. So what the government should be doing is working with the municipalities and encouraging this kind of attitude to continue to allow for, for, for businesses to make it easy to, to continue on as we enter into the fall, which we know can be a really difficult time. And then when we look more medium and longer term, we look at transforming our regions, so improving broadband access, um, increasing the capital budget for some needed regional infrastructure. And then investing in the future, we know that young people have been really impacted very, very hard by this pandemic. And so we're encouraging the government to launch a startup capital program that provides seed capital for young entrepreneurs.
1: What about optimism? What is the optimism level like, Bridget, among business owners right now?
8: Uh, You know, it is uh, we're going into a difficult time and I I don't want to uh, sugarcoat that because there's a lot of concern about a substantial second wave Uh, We have many, many of uh, the businesses that we have surveyed have said that they are using some sort of government support, so that was about two-thirds of businesses using some sort of government support, and they're worried that once uh, the government support wanes off, which we know that it is in the coming weeks, that things are going to be more difficult. One of the biggest challenges that businesses have faced is having revenue return and having customers come back, and I'm right downtown right now, and I was downtown yesterday And it often looks a bit like a Sunday afternoon. So people are still working from home uh, and, and things have not returned to normal yet.
1: Is there a concern about the rental situation as well for businesses? If they can't pay their rent, they've had some relief for a couple months. That ends, right? Starting this week.
8: Uh, Yes, I understand that there might be some changes coming on that. I know that uh, the business community and uh, ourselves and many others have been uh, uh, really advocating very, very strongly for some changes to that or extension. And that's really the mindset that we're asking for from government. I mean, we're really talking about the BC economic recovery plan. But, you know, when you think about all levels of government, what are the things that all levels of government can do to make it easier for businesses, so extension of programs, deferral of payments. Um, You know, I think there was this uh, period over July and August where we were starting to, people were taking vacation and we were starting to get used to the kinds of levels of of business. But we're going into the fall now, kids are going back to school, and so we're going into a difficult time, and I think we all need to to come together, and and government really needs to think about supporting businesses if things get more difficult.
1: Now, do we see a shift happening in the economy, Bridget, as we have during other times of, like, the Great Recession? Or or do you see that this is just a waiting for things to perhaps come back?
8: This is an opportunity to innovate and to ensure that we are responding to the pandemic, but we're thinking long-term. You know, we have an opportunity to really invest in digital technology, for example. We also have opportunities... To create, uh, you know, a new agricultural zone, if you will, to help unlock some of the technologies and innovations that we know have been recommended in the task force uh, for food security that came out several months ago. We have an opportunity to reskill and retrain our workers. So that is the mindset, and you know, that might be the optimism for many employers and for government as well. That we can take lessons from this pandemic. Uh, we do have to respond to the short-term needs of businesses, which are quite critical, but there is an opportunity to innovate and to pivot. And many businesses have done so very successfully already, but now is the time to, to think about how to further that and for the government to support that.
1: I like the idea that you've got in there as uh, internal trade liberalization, use this opportunity to pursue that within Canada as well
8: yeah, I've been quite vocal on that this summer, yeah. and it's been uh, it's been a fun campaign that I've been working on with some of my other partners across Canada and other Chambers of commerce and and boards of trade. And when we we know that internal trade barriers cost the economy a lot of money, and by reducing them, we can increase GDP. Uh, right through our country. And so things like, you know, we did a a campaign and I was was posted on social media, but it was about how difficult it is to ship a bottle of BC wine to a friend of mine in Montreal, for example. So things like that, you know, uh, we have been pretty good in thinking about how to reduce the barriers, you know, my example around the patios or about restaurants being able to send out uh, wine when, they're, when people yeah. are ordering food. So why can't that mindset be put uh, for, the, for the medium and the long term as
1: well? Good example. Thanks for your time this morning. Thanks so much, me. That's Bridget Anderson, president and CEO of the Greater Vancouver Board of Trade. They've actually released their economic recovery plan. You can check it out on their website. It is very extensive. I mean, the trade liberalization was just one example. There's a long list of things they're saying the government and different levels of government can do to take this moment as an opportunity to kind of really change things and innovate within the economy. If you want to weigh in, Simi at cknw.com.
0: This is Mornings with Simi.
1: I've often said that if I could have the life of any animal, it would be my cat, because she really does live the life, goes where she wants to, comes and goes where she pleases, gets fed on demand. There's so many cats whose attitude I so admire. Chances are there's one in your neighborhood, too, that you have seen just doing exactly what it wants to all the time. Well, the Stewardship Centre of BC is trying to figure out how many neighborhood cats are actually out there and where it is they like to wander. Let's find out why joining us now is Jalen Bastos, who's the lead investigator of this project. Jalen, thanks for being here.
9: of course, yeah, good morning, and thank you for having me.
1: Why such an interest in the neighborhood cat?
9: Um, I mean <laughs> we have there's many reasons, but I think first and foremost, we need to um go back to sort of identifying how many even live in our urban spaces, right? I think as kind of similar to like a doctor performing triage, you, we need to sort of identify how big the problem is in order to propose any sort of solutions. And I think that's what we're trying to do mainly with this project is we're not so much um, like trying to track cats per se, but we're trying um, our utmost to determine um, how many total cats live in Vancouver.
1: Okay. And how are you going to do that? Because they can be sneaky.
9: Yes, <laughs> they have uh, quite a lot of methods for avoiding our cameras, um, but essentially in order to estimate the number of free roaming cats that live in the city, so that's the cats that are outside and unsupervised, we have to determine which areas of Vancouver are capable of supporting the most cats. So essentially what areas have the the hot spots, the the highest densities or the low spots, so the lowest densities. And we're using um, the different land use areas of Vancouver in order to identify those differences. So um, land uses like commercial areas, industrial areas, um, educational areas, parklands, for example, and residential areas mainly, um, are how we're using um, the different land uses of Vancouver to distinguish and determine those densities. Um, Yeah.
1: Okay, so it sounds like then you're not necessarily interested in a cat like my cat who is like 80% of the time an indoor cat.
9: Yes. Um, While if your cat does go outside for any portion of the day unsupervised, we are still interested in capturing that. Um, Essentially, we want to be able to just have a full visualization of all of the cats that are outside of Vancouver at any given time unsupervised.
1: Okay. And what are they causing a problem out there? Is there something that we're trying to mitigate by finding out where they are?
9: Um, so, they not so much that they cause a problem, um, and I feel as though a lot of the time pet owners are actually letting their cats outside as a means of, like, solution or as a means of trying to provide their cats with, like, enrichment or entertainment opportunities. Um, it's just unfortunate that outside, when unsupervised, um, our cats are also you know, subject to predation either by the local coyotes that call Mm. the city home as well um, or disease or parasite transfer. Um, And there's also the potential risk, right, of um, car accidents or any sort of other human wildlife um, altercation between your cat and individuals when they're outside unsupervised.
1: So what do you hope to do with the results then?
9: Um, So our results, well, we won't um, necessarily see all the cats like on the camera. We're going to use uh, the photos and computer programs to estimate, so first and foremost, the total number of cats that are unsupervised. And our preliminary numbers right now are putting it around 50 to 100,000 cats that call the city of Vancouver home and that are outside unsupervised.
1: I'm sorry, um, How ma- can you say that number again? How many cats?
9: 50 to 100,000 cats. What? Yes. I know, right? And imagine what that number could mean for like city planners or different neighborhoods. And so ideally what, we're, what we would like to use this information for, right, is to help um, develop better best practices um, and common procedures when it comes to further urban development or infrastructural development and specifically with um, community development and engagement, looking at identifying those sort of hot spots Um, And zeroing in on those communities um, for either like educational programs or engagement opportunities about what sort of responsible pet ownership looks like um, for your outdoor cat.
1: It's interesting that you say that because we often talk about that with dogs, right? But I just don't feel like we have that conversation about cats.
9: Exactly. So much of our conversation around pet ownership and responsible pet ownership is centered around dogs and I, I mean rightfully so dogs are very cute and they are a little bit more um, you know willing to join us in some of our outdoor <laughs> adventures. Um but yeah that doesn't mean that cats are not unwilling and um, cats yeah. Cats will just
1: do it on their own time Jalen okay they're willing they just want to be willing on their own time.
9: Exactly cats just require I feel as though the requirement for you know owning um, a pet like a cat is it's just a little bit different right it's, it requires a little bit more patience And a little bit more of an understanding that because, you know, cats uh, (laughs) have a little bit more of a a stronger hunting instinct, that we have a bit of a a stronger responsibility to
1: adhere to that. Is there any place that people can get more information on this, like if they want to help you do this?
9: Yeah, they're interested in like finding out more about the project or just like wanting to learn more in general sort of about how um, cats are happening or moving around the city, um, we're have uh, posting our um, updates to our website. So that's the Stewardship Centre for British Columbia dot CA slash cats and birds. And then also on my personal um, social media accounts, I'm uh, posting a little bit more like regular updates of sort of what it looks like when I'm in the field um, and sort of what that process looks like.
1: All right, Jalen, thanks so much.
9: Thank you so much for having me.